Hello! Welcome to the Diaspora and Transnational Studies podcast. I know, what an original name. I'm going to be the host of this episode. My name is Mona Ahmed. Nice to meet you all. And let's get started. So, before we get into the question of today's episode, I wanted to explore or explain what the imagined community meant. And Benedict, it's basically an argument made by Benedict Anderson that the nation is merely a concept that was created by a culture. And that culture enabled people to believe that they have a heritage in common. And by having a heritage in common, it also enabled people into believing that they have a collective responsibility to their nation. So, by by looking into his concept of an imagined community, it started to make me question whether transnational identity had a correlation to state building. And the podcast episode for today will revolve around the following question. Can unity that emerged from an imagined community within a diaspora develop a developing economy? And, or at least aid in the development of a developing economy. And I'll be exploring this question by focusing on the, the Somali diaspora in Canada. Oh. The question I pose is important because it has a transnational... Now, you might be wondering why this question is important. Well, this question is important because it asks if a transnational community can directly impact their homeland, nonetheless directly aid in the development of it. I want to know if a diaspora fantasizing about the way their country was before mass migration or even imagining it as developed as their current settlement would encourage actual economic growth. And this could show how much power a transnational community can hold in the reconstruction of their homeland. Or depending on the results, I guess it could be. In order to understand Somali identity and the relation that it has to the reconstruction of Somalia, first we would have to look at the reason for migration and how the country's history shaped the current diaspora's identity. And by understanding that, the next section of the podcast will lead us to discussing the case of an active member of the Somali diaspora in Canada and their experiences. Using their information and other resources, I will be making the argument that the alienation of a community ironically creates an imagined community that feels a collective obligation to reconstruct their country. So let's get into it. Somalia, a nation located in the Horn of Africa with a population of about 15 million. It is the most culturally homogenous country in Africa as 85% of the country identifies as being ethnically Somali. The main languages spoken in Somalia are Somali and Arabic. However, there are some remnants of their colonial past as some of the older generations still speak Italian and English. Now, Going back to the name of the country, what do you think of when I say Somalia? Don't worry, I'll give you a second to think. 
Oh, looks like your time is up. Many people would think of piracy, thanks to Captain Phillips, famine, terrorism, Black Hawk Down, anarchy, and the civil war that shocked the world in the early 90s. The, civ the Somali Civil War occurred between 1989 and till 1991, and a great number of Somalis following the Civil War immigrated as a direct or indirect result of the war. In order to understand the Somali diaspora's identity, we must first examine the events leading up to the dispersal of the Somali people. Often people oversimplify the Somali Civil War and why Somalia is now referred to as a quote-unquote failed state by merely blaming it on clans disliking each other, so they fought. But, there's a lot more to it. According to Leroy Vale, an American specialist in African studies stated that the intellectual interpretation of ethnic politics in Africa is usually one-dimensional, and we should therefore try to understand the politics of belonging around the historical context of the nation you are studying. And since Somalia is homogenous, you would think that there isn't ethnic politics, but you would be wrong because clanism is their form of ethnic politics. These clans utilize their identities to form political affiliations that depict their political interests. Although the clans existed before colonialism, it is because of colonial powers utilizing the technique of divide and conquer. It further exacerbated the clans of Somalia's differences. Disrupting the unification of the Somalis by pitting clans against one another was a strategic use of clanship to further exploit the resources of the nation and withhold power. The colonial powers, Italy, Britain, and France, institutionalized ethnic politics through the colonial policies they implemented. For instance, in pre-colonial Somalia, these clans were merely genealogically complex family trees that did not operate hierarchically. The chiefs of each clan acted as elders but did not hold institutional power over other members of the clan due to their titles. However, during colonial occupation, Italy and Britain institutionalized clans and chiefs in the political and socioeconomic sphere for administrative purposes. Therefore, this shows that clanism was not innate in Somali society as a tool for power. Rather, the chieftainship was legitimized by colonial institutions, resulting in a lack of nationalism and created disputes over who gets to be the clan in power. Since clanism was embedded in the governance of Somalia as a byproduct of colonialism, it remained a prominent aspect of the politics in Somalia after gaining independence in the 60s. For instance, dictator Siad Barre co-opted a military coup to overthrow the newly formed democracy in favor of his own authoritarian government. He utilized clanship as a means for his own exploitation and reach for power. And after the Ogaden War, there were refugees coming from the region in Ethiopia, and Siad Barre placed those refugees strategically in his main opposition's territory, the Isaq clan. 
that was their ter ter uh, territory. And um, he did this as an attempt to weaken them. However, it only resulted in the Isaac clan revolting against him in 1988. This angered Badr as he then led a state-sponsored genocide of the Isaac clan in 1989, which killed around 100,000 people. Other clans were outraged by the dictator's actions as they also revolted against his government following the massacre of the Isaq people. Barre then fled from Mogadishu, ultimately resulting in the collapse of Soma the Somali central government. The clans began to fight one another in order to seize the centralized power that Barre left behind. And this was the civil war of Somalia between 1988 to 1991. Now, a quick thing that I wanted to mention was that it it would be ignorant of me to ignore the other factors that resulted in Somal the Somali Civil War besides colonialism and dictator Siad Barre exploiting clans for political power and monetary gain. For example, just one example, so I don't get off track, <laughs> um, for an intervention during the Cold War in relation to land disputes over the Ogaden region between Ethiopia and Somalia. It was a huge factor in the, in the occurrence of the Civil War in 1989. Um, the Soviets basically provided Ethiopia with military supplies that were worth up to $7 billion. They also provided, they also deployed Cuban uh, troops, about 16,000 of them, to aid in the fight against Somalia. And um, they also sent Soviet adv military advisors to the front lines in order to beat the Somalis. And the United States backed Somalia by providing the nation with $100 million annually, which is such a little amount compared to what the Soviets gave to Ethiopia. Now, I'm not picking sides, but I'm just pointing out the differences. Um, the Soviets' involvement led to the economic decline of Somalia and weakened the Somali military as a third of the military died in that war. And that was just a fun fact that you could know now. After the civil war, there was a large migration of Somali people leaving Somalia as refugees and asylum seekers. They went to neighboring countries such as Ethiopia and Kenya, but they also went to a lot of countries in the West, including Canada. The identity of Somali people played a significant role in the civil war as clanism was enabled as a result of colonialism. In pre-colonial Somalia, clanism was merely a tool to distinguish complex genealogical family ties, but those in pursuit of power used it as a tool of division. Clans and politics became unanimous in current day Somalia as one cannot be mentioned without the other. However. Clanism does not hold as much significance in the Somali diaspora. This can be attributed to the dispersion of Somali people itself. Since Somali people have migrated and settled in areas with completely different cultures to their own, assimilation is quite difficult. For instance, this resulted in highly concentrated areas with tight-knit communities in these, in these new settlements. In Toronto, the most notable areas with large concentration of Somali people are Rexdale and Dixon, which is where my interviewee, Farhia Wa'ais, which feels really weird to say her name because she's my mom, if she heard me right now, she would <laughs> she would be mad. Anyway, 
lived when she first moved to Canada in 1997. She lived in Dixon in 1997. The reason why she and many other Somali people moved to this area was because of its high concentration of Somalis. The alienation and discrimination felt by this transnational community due to being a visible minority group with prior socio-cultural norms that diverge from Canadian norms are what enabled an imagined, idealized version of Somalia. The concept of a unified and developed Somalia is what created what Benedict Anderson would define as an imagined community. Anderson argued that a nation is a socially constructed community imagined by the people who perceive themselves as a part of that group. Prior to being a, prior to being a part of a diaspora, clanism was utilized to identify who belonged to what group since Somalia is homogenous. In the Somali transnational community, the population is scarce and dispersed, thus being Somali is what bonds them collectively. There isn't much of an emphasis on clanism sorry, there isn't much of an emphasis on clan differences because there are not many people. There's not that many Somali people to make a distinction. Also, being in a completely different society that felt exclusionary is what allowed for the Somali diaspora to bond over collective alienation and having the same culture and language. Anderson would also argue that this imagined community, they believe that they have a common heritage, thus have collective responsibility to their homeland. The exclusion that bonded the Somali transnational community is what leads to a mindset of an imagined ideal state for quote-unquote our own rather than trying to completely assimilate. To this community, assimilation is an erasure of your own identity to satisfy the needs of the majority. This is not necessarily a bad mindset to have because it fuels economic development and state building projects by the transnational community in order to fulfill their obligation to their homeland. Somalia's population is estimated to be at around 14.4 million and of that population around 3 million are estimated to live abroad. This estimate depicts that 14% of Somalia's population live outside of the country as a diaspora community, a, pro a proportion so large that it would be justified to refer to Somalia as a truly globalized nation. The size of the Somali diaspora makes a major contribution to the Somali economy and livelihood through participation in reconstruction efforts, remittances, and humanitarian efforts. Without the support, the economy without the support of the diaspora, the economy of the country would have faced major repercussions and would not be developing at the rate that it is. However, the scale of assistance from the Somali transnational community and how the support is delivered is little understood by scholars, there's not much research on it, and the international development community doesn't really know much about it. There are many ways that the Somali diaspora contribute to the state building efforts, but in this episode I will only be focusing on economic remittances. According to Luan Goldring, a scholar on transnational migration at uh, York University, there are three types of remittances. Remittance as wage and salary, remittances as investment, and uh, collective remittance. 
From the qualitative interview that I did, I found that my interviewee, Farhiyawa Aiz, contributes part of her own income to two of those sectors of financial remittance, which we will be exploring in just a second. Remittance as wage and salary. This is the first type of remittance that I mentioned, and this remittance is more personal as it is intended for familial and relative consumption only. It is also the most common type of remittance. Several studies found that more than 80% of remittances intended at the household level are utilized for basic household consumption. Cindy Horst, a research director at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, argues that before the Civil War in Somalia, most remittances were used solely for family consumption. Currently, it is not only limited to household usage, but also in investing into human capital in areas such as education and housing investment. Farhiyawa Ais invests most of the money she sends back home into her own family's consumption and education. Ais is the eldest daughter of seven kids, which is a traditional in a traditional Somali household means that she is still responsible for the well-being of her younger siblings. Despite the fact that my mom has been away from her family for more than 23 years, the success and well-being of her younger siblings are still her responsibility. For instance, she invested a portion of her income into two of her younger siblings' tuition towards their high school, elementary, and post-secondary education in Somalia. Some scholars would argue that this aspect of remittance that is invested into human capital and for household usage is valuable to the development process of a state as it improves the overall lifestyle of those living in that state, especially in areas such as health, nutrition, and education. For instance, my interviewee as well as research found that previously illiterate family members became educated due to remittances. Without my mom sending remittances to my aunts, my aunts would not have gone to school. And some, although sending remittances for education and investing it into human capital is beneficial, research shows that only 5-10% to 10% of remittances are sent with the intent of education in Somalia. And this is very visible as Somalia's literacy rate is only at 37.8%. This is the second part of remittances and it is called remittances as investment. The type of remittance, this type of remittance is described as the type of remittance that is brought back home while visiting their country of origin and is typically used for building a home or to purchase land. This is also a more personal investment as it doesn't directly involve helping the development of the country. But um, it's more about having a home in your country of origin, a place to be when you go back. And this correlates to the overall Somali diaspora's experience as well. The NHS reports that the average income of the Somali Canadian population over the age of 15 years old is $24,182. Canada's low income cutoff table of 2020 indicates that 
70% of Somali Canadians are severely disadvantaged, which means they fall well below the poverty line. Despite this, Somali Canadians spend a significant amount of money in remittances as the United Nations Development Program UNDP, estimates that remittances by way of money services um, accounts for a third of the country's GDP, with money received from the diaspora accounting for 80% of the nation's startup capital. It is widely understood that crises as a, a result of poverty and famine have been partially mitigated by remittances. One UNDP coordinator stated the following. Here's a quote. Money transfers have been more consistent than aid investment or social welfare programs. Famine would have been declared long ago if it, if it were not for the diaspora. And the quote ends right there. The Somali diaspora is together contributing $1.3 billion towards Somalia annually. Another $1 billion comes from development aid and foremost humanitarian assistant assistance to Somalia each year. Somalia is very dependent on remittances sent by the diaspora as it compromises 50% of the country's GDP and 40% of the Somali population is dependent on the remittances sent for their own basic needs. This indicates that despite the Somali Canadian population being in poverty in their new settlement, they still feel an obligation to send remittances or bring remittances with them in Somalia. I would even go as far to argue that the reason why they feel a responsibility to send money back home despite being in poverty is because they want to develop their own home country as a direct result of feeling alienated in Canadian society. For instance, my family does fall significantly under the poverty line due to living in a civil, uh, single parent household, my mom being the sole provider. Despite this, she spends a considerable amount of her income on remittances, investing in uh, businesses, investing in her family's agriculture and livestock ownership, and building a home on the land that she bought in I think around 2013. Yeah, she said that. and. Um, this is not really exceptional or like crazy for all Somali people my mom knows because um and they they make around the same wages as her as well but some of their money they invest some of their money into one or more aspects of the country's development and she indicated the following during uh, the interview and she said my savings and retirement money goes towards helping my homeland. At times, this puts me at risk as I can't always afford to send money back home, but I'm happy to, uh, to give my money back to my people. And that's where the quote ends. This can be tied back to the alienation she felt as a minority who was not familiar nor accepted by Canadian societal norms. For instance, I asked my mom, how she felt when she migrated she first migrated here and she stated the following what do you mean by first came here they still treat me like a worthless immigrant 
a worthless, ignorant immigrant. Nobody welcomed me except for my own community. They told me to go back to my country and called me derogatory terms. To this day, I do not think Padans, which means white people, consider me Canadian even though I have citizenship and lived here for half my life. I don't think they will ever accept me." End quote. This depicts that regardless of being a citizen of a country, migrants still feel like they do not belong due to the discrimination they face in their new home. This enables an urge to reconstruct one's homeland in order to feel like you belong. And finally, getting into the last uh, type of remittance is collective remittances. This type of remittance is defined as the money or the material that diaspora organizations and religious groups from the same area transfer to their homeland. This would include charity and its intention is to build infrastructure such as schools, mosques, and hospitals, and etc. My mom is not necessarily involved in this aspect of remittances, but while I was interviewing her, she did know to tell me during the interview that it is one of her life goals, let's say when she um, gains a larger income, to build a hospital specifically for midwifery due to seeing so many of her relatives dying due to not having the resources or the facilities or equipment necessary for giving birth. Um, but um, she does contribute towards charities that fund the development of Somalia. Um, for example, during Ramadan at the mosque that she goes to in Etobicoke, it's called Khalid bin Walid, um, and they usually like have a charity that they do there, a donation towards going back home, and she does usually contribute. It, 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 there's a different cause every year, and I'm not really sure which one there was this year, but... I don't think there was because of corona, but um, the years prior to that, sometimes it would go to building a mosque, sometimes it would go to um, people that needed food, and yeah, this part, this section is done. Before I reach the conclusion of this podcast, I wanted to point out what are some constraints that don't allow for diaspora investment to be as effective? Um, and there are four, oh sorry, three, <laughs> three um, constraints. One is government structure, one is remittance dependency, and the last one is, foreign, is related to foreign investment. And I'll get to it in a second. So, for the first one, government structure. Um, so, I discussed earlier that institutionalized clanism um, was embedded into Somalia's political system by colonial powers and people that were trying to seize power, like Siad Barre. Um, this is still present in Somalia today. And this is one of the reasons why the government is still very unstable and this is the aspect that shows you who gets a say on a stable Somalia besides the diaspora the ones in Somalia so 
this the governance system in Somalia right now is the 4.5 governance system each member of the cabinet is divided into 4.5 sections each clan gets a say basically so one section is for Darod which is one clan one section is for Dir, one section is for Hawiya, one section is for Rahawain, <laughs> and there's the point 0.5 for the 4.5 is the minority groups in Somalia. And this shows that instead of looking at the skills that a politician should have or cabinet members should have, the government officials are are qualified and selected based on clan allegiances and this form of identity politics contributes to a culture of corruption and poor leadership also the minorities don't really get much of a say on what they believe Somalia should be because they have such a minimal role and they're judged on their class in their Sorry, they're ranking in a clan. Um, and this 4.5 system also heavily impacts foreign missions. For example, not only would these foreign missions also they would have to they would have to open an embassy in Muktisha, the capital city, as well as each region related to each tribe. So it makes it harder to try to make change when a when they have to open an embassy in each tribe because they want it to be fair when in reality it should just be opened in Muqtisho. Another problem that I just wanted to touch on for just like a second was remittance dependency and this is basically as you can tell from the name um, when the country becomes too dependent on remittances and currently it's un it's uh, not really sure if Somalia is going to become completely dependent on remittances but currently Somalia is very much depend dependent on remittances as i mentioned earlier that about 40% of somali people living in somalia are dependent on uh remittances for their own basic needs and 50% of the country's gdp is because of remittances that are sent from people like my mom in the diaspora and the problem here is that people in the diaspora can barely afford their own life. Let's say, for example, my mom. We live in, we're pretty low income, and so are a lot of Somali people in this Canadian diaspora. And by sending that much money towards Somalia, it really affects the amount of money that people have here. And I'm not saying that it's bad to send remittances, but I think that there needs to be change within the structures in Somalia in order for them to be self-sustaining in order for Somali people to not rely on just the diaspora in just being able to afford basic needs if I make any sense um, but the last problem that I wanted to point out very briefly as well was um, it's hard right now for a lot of African countries, and so Somalia is an example, um, to determine what is foreign intervention and what is exploitation. Because a lot of countries 
we'll see the prospects of another country, for example, like post-colonial countries, having a lot of resources, and they'll start to try to intervene and invest in that country. But, for example, China right now is um, currently investing in a lot of post-colonial countries and developing countries and being like, hey, I'll build you this train if you pay me back later on. And the thing is, these countries usually are not able to pay back China and pay back the debt. So the problem that's happening here is they become in debt even though they don't even have the money to be self-sustaining, which is a huge problem. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that's all I wanted to say for the constraints that don't allow for diaspora investment to be as effective as it could be. In conclusion, in this episode of my podcast, <laughs> I found that I found the answer to the question that if that how could unity that emerged from imag- an imagined community and the exclusion of a people result in economic development? And I found the answer that in the case of Somalia, as according to the UNDP, Somalia would have substantially been in a horrible economic state without the billions of dollars invested into Somalia by the diaspora. And the reason why they invest into Somalia is because they are isolated in the community the transnational the sorry the settlement that they live in now since they feel so isolated they begin to as a collective imagine an idealized version of Somalia and this makes them want that it urges them it motivates them to do something about the way that their country is right now and it's because they don't want to stay here forever and my mom does indicate that in the interview that she if Somalia were to become developed or as developed as Canada in the future she would definitely move back and it wasn't even her choice to move here it was the civil war that pushed her out but she would definitely move back and a lot of Somali people have this mindset as well that this country treats them terribly and makes them feel isolated and like they're not Canadian despite having citizenships or living here for more than two decades. It's this isolation that drives them to want to not live here anymore. And this isn't blind optimism to believe that the reconstruction of your homeland, to believe in the reconstruction of it, I think it's it's a very positive thing that brings about a lot of change, especially within Somalia. And that's the end of my podcast. <laughs> I hope this came across as educational, especially for people who did not know much about Somalia and the history of clanism and all that stuff. Anyway, have a great rest of your day. Bye!